The following program is brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, preposterous. Thank you very much. My guests are Elisa Romeo and Adam Foley. Elisa is a licensed marriage and family therapist, an intuitive and best-selling author of Meet Your Soul, a powerful guide to connect with your most sacred self. Her work combines her background in depth psychology with an ability to directly communicate with the soul. Adam Foley is a certified somatic practitioner, yoga instructor, and spiritual coach. Together they host the Holy and Human podcast and are the authors of this wonderful new book that we're going to be talking about, Holy Love, The Essential Guide to Soul-Fulfilling Relationships. It's a book that teaches how to connect with and hear the still quiet voice of our own soul and then bring that soul level of connection into the rest of our lives and relationships. Elisa and Adam, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. I love the name of your show. Yeah, we were talking about how fun it is. Yeah. It was actually a gift from one of my skeptic friends who used to Oh, the best kind of gift. Yeah. (laughs) Who used to say, your show is nothing but a magical mystery tour. Mm. And I said, wow, I love that. I'm going to use that. (laughs) You're like, thank you. I love that. You know, that really reminds me. I can relate to that. When I started my my psychic program, I went through this three and a half year training program that was a psychic program. And I grew up, my dad was a real cynic. He was raised Catholic and he was a man of science. So he had a really hard time you know, he had a lot of trauma from that experience. And so I was around a lot of kind of analytical energy. Like if you can't prove it, it doesn't exist. And so I had that within me. I'd internalized that voice, but I had also had these psychic mystical things happening to me and I didn't know how to kind of hold both those things. Right. Like, and so when I started my psychic program, I had to call it imagination station in my head to kind of just be there because there was this part of me that was just getting migraines because I was so angry and cynical, but also knew it was true. And uh, so I had to kind of lighten the whole thing up, like just fake it till you make it, make it imaginal in order to enter that realm and start to have experiences there. I had to kind of lighten it up and call it the imagination station. Take it (laughs) less seriously. Take it less seriously to take it more seriously. Yeah. 
Wow, that sounds wonderful in a way. I mean, just to have those experiences at a time when you could think about it in those terms. Like I started having experiences in that realm when I was nine years old and mm -hmm. I didn't have any way of putting it into words or language or anything. So I never told anybody and I had no reference point whatsoever. Never. I think that's that's the common experience for people who are like little mystics or intuitives or seers. It's kind of like our society is really not good at kind of honoring and encouraging and validating those experiences. So they're really taboo. They're really considered anytime on media when someone's presented as a seer, it's they're crazy or they're a con artist. It doesn't exist. And so when you start to experience it yourself it's kind of it's it can be scary because it's like well what does that mean am i crazy am i a con artist <laughs> but over time people start whispering these things the most you know rational scientific people i've been in doctor's appointments where i've had doctors whisper to me oh when they find out what i do they're like oh yeah once when i was 11 my grandma after she died came back as a spirit to the end of my bed but don't tell anyone you know it's like it's it's in these hushed tones of shame and secrecy and it, it just got me wondering why are we so scared about these experiences you know yeah it's amazing how it seems like more people than not have had these kind of experiences and yet as you say they don't feel safe talking about them or sharing them with other people I agree. It seems like more people and then they compartmentalize it and minimize it and kind of they're in denial that that's real. I didn't even know enough to even think about that kind of a strategy. I just had no reference point for it that I didn't even know how to begin to even think about it, let alone talk about it. Yeah. What were some of your experiences? I'm just curious. Well, there were several and they Many of them were happening in that hypnagogic state between waking and sleep. Um, one of them was sort of like dying, where I would find myself in this deepest, darkest place, way, way down in some deep subterranean underworld, but just complete, utter darkness. And I would have this moment of Maybe he was panic and I would like leap up, tearing through layers and layers of darkness. And then I would physically leap out of bed, gasping. Mm. And that happened almost every night for a period of time, along with many other very difficult to describe experiences. And then there were other things that happened more recurring that that were during my conscious state. Mm -hmm. But since then, I've I've spoken to numerous people who've had their own type of mystical and expansive experiences. So I know it's not uncommon. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's interesting you're talking about that stage between waking and sleeping. And, you know, that dream world can be so confusing, right? There, we can get so many, so many mixed messages and hard to interpret metaphors. And so one thing we like to do with people is try to get them into that state of consciousness that you are in between that waking and sleeping state, because we would say that's a theta state in your brain. And theta state is that deep sleep state. And in that deep sleep state, 
we can have access to greater information beyond our ego. So we use that state as a way to connect to your soul voice through a few exercises we call soul dialoguing. And we create a conversation between your waking self, your daily consciousness, we would call that your ego self, your idea of self. And then we can raise your brain state to the theta state and get information from your soul self. And we call this the voice of wisdom, of unconditional love. This is the still small voice within that we sometimes can hear in little intuitions and hunches, like when we just kind of know, oh, our friend is going to call us in 10 minutes. We've just kind of felt them energetically or intuitively, or if we have a hunch that we shouldn't go driving right now in a rainstorm and things like that. So I think we all have experiences of these glimpses of intuition and hunches, but we like to train people to consciously be able to access that and then get information that they can apply to their lives. So you're talking about training people to navigate the different brain states. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I used to work, uh, I, I trained under Stan Groff, who's the head of the transpersonal psychology movement. And his whole thing was back in the 60s and 70s at Harvard when they were using LSD as a psychotropic medication. He would give three people a day LSD and take them through the lower world. And there's a common psychological pattern of dismemberment where your ego is dissolving and a complete panic and fear before you're reborn into the light. And so what you're speaking of feels to me like that dismemberment phase of like the death of the old, which is terrifying in it. He would often say it's like a sugar cube when you put it in a water, the sugar cube is dissolving. And so there's a feeling of panic of like, this isn't safe. This is scary. There's something bigger. What's happening to me? Um, but then the sugar cube is still in the water. It's just in a different form. And so then the identity takes on a new experience. But the ego, the feeling of when the ego's dying, it is a feeling of like, no, I don't want to dissolve. This is terror. And so he thought a lot of mental illness, people who were stuck in schizophrenic states are basically their trip was kind of um, interrupted and that we don't get to psychologically resolve what the soul is trying to take us on on that journey. So his whole thing is like safely encouraging and holding people to kind of complete the psychological death process. And and what I really believe is is the same is that this, the soul is so loving and has an agenda, even if the first stage of that like developmental stage might be terror and dismemberment. It's it's trying to get to a new understanding and interpretation of ourselves as love and being safe in all dimensions. But sometimes we have to kind of experience ourselves as like scared and lost in different astral states before we come to the next conclusion of like love is available in all states. So that's what I was thinking about. It'd be interesting if you did some soul journaling, what your soul would tell you about what those experiences were trying to show you and where was love in the narrative, even if love felt not available to you in the moment because it felt like terror, what's the bigger love story about what it was trying to teach you? Like the soul lesson of what was happening there. Yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't had that recur. However, it seems to have morphed into a different experience that I've had recurring throughout my life every once in a great while where I have this panic attack from fear of either being buried alive mm. or being stuck somewhere where I can't move. 
mm -hmm. like an extreme form of claustrophobia. Mm. And every time I experience that, I just panic and I, I literally have to get up. I have to jump up and I have to move my body. Mm -hmm. And and the last time it happened, I tried because I've I've thought about this and I, I just tried to stay still and present with it and relax into it. But mm -hmm. even though I had really strong intention to do it, I still couldn't resist that desperate urge to jump up like mm -hmm. tr trying to get out of my skin. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so biological, right? It's like if someone's holding you underwater and you're drowning, you're, all your instincts are going to fight to go up to the surface. But then there might be some past lifetime trauma there in that story for you. There might be some memory, you know, of a lifetime where that occurred. Because sometimes that is the case. The Dalai Lama in The Art of Happiness was asked by this Western MD psychiatrist, why do you think Westerners are unhappy and he said because you don't have an understanding of your past lives so you're looking for all your answers for happiness it's like looking for your keys in a parking lot but just under where the light's shining <laughs> and there's all this other all this other places where the keys could be and so sometimes my background is, is like Jungian psychology so I think it's taking a very psychoanalytic approach but also I've had past life memories Adam and I have had we had a past life where he was murdered next to me in bed and when we first came back together I was grieving and really experiencing all the trauma of him dying and me having to live without him before. And I had to feel those feelings before I could open my heart to letting him in in this lifetime. So I also find sometimes looking in the dark for some of the origin of that trauma can be useful for healing a deeper wound that we might be carrying that might seem irrational for this lifetime. But I also think it's kind of like there's this one exercise in Holy Love called Mystic Mad Libs. And you might want to try that around that panic kind of state that happens because it kind of asks this question. It's looking at the soul lesson of like why you're working through that issue of claustrophobia or being buried alive or suffocated. It's like what on a soul level are you coming to understand yourself as love? And so one of the questions is if I knew what completely and totally, like 100% embodied it, would it take the suffering out of this experience? And I know that's like a really big question and sometimes can be really hard because especially you're talking about life or death in your situation, that feeling of like, I'm being, you know, killed basically. So it's a little bit of the Christ myth, right? Of like, how can, if you're about to be murdered, find peace in that moment, it feels like you were going towards it with that intention to surrender to the experience. I, I told Adam the other day, we were on a walk, and I said when I was in fourth grade, I remember taking a bath and thinking, I just started having a panic attack. And I was like, what if something happens to my family? And then what if something happens to me? And what if something happens to my friends? And like, what if we all died? And it kept getting bigger and bigger. And then I remember it was like the whole neighborhood. And what if a bomb came and blew us all up? And then it went to like, what if the whole world exploded? And I remember really feeling it felt like an astral, like, like viewing it. And then I felt a part of me, you know, the devastation, the, the pain, the grief of that. But then also the part of me as spirit that was peace itself, even if the world exploded. The part of me that would exist as consciousness, as an entity, even if everything I ever knew was gone. Well, I think one way you describe that is even if all these terrible things happen, would you let it disconnect you from yourself? And it was kind of this situation of what's in your control and what's out of your control. 
uh, we can try our best here on planet Earth, but we may not be able to avoid chaos and destruction. And so how can we live with these experiences and still stay connected to our spiritual purpose and our soul? And what we really know, because we're mediums as well, so we talk to spirits, is that love is eternal. We will all die. There will be a moment where we won't be able to breathe. And what you'll find is you still exist. And also there's a place through beyond the terror where you are existing as love and experiencing consciousness as bliss, even without a body, even without lungs, even without, even if you're covered in dirt to be killed. That will be momentary, the experience of suffering, and then you will go back to love. Mm-hmm. And not to diminish the terror, you know, nobody, if you started strangling me right now, it would not be an enjoyable experience for me. So it's like not to diminish. That's why our podcast is called Holy and Human, right? Because they're both true. The physical world experience, the egoic narrative of fighting for whether it's our biological instincts to breathe or whatever that is, our attachments. But then the other part of us that is actually eternal and is all loving. And we always encourage people to first start with connecting to their own soul because your soul has, this is your wisdom. We use soul and the word wisdom interchangeably. So it's that part of you, your wise mind, that does understand what's going on. And you can get very specific and particular and grounded practical instructions and advice through soul dialoguing. And it really is a lot of fake it till you make it because a lot of times you might say, well, I don't know what that would be. I don't know what my soul's doing about why I'm experiencing those panic attacks or that claustrophobia. But then you have to fake it to make it, if you pretended part of you did know, what might be happening. And the answer is different and always changing from moment to moment because it's not a rule book. We don't have any dogma or, you know, strict ideals to live by here. It's more, can you listen to the present unfolding wisdom of this moment? And so sometimes I'll check in with my soul and he'll say something like, yeah, it's really time for you to feel the origin of this wound and you can release it through tears. And sometimes he'll say something like, hey, now it's time to eat a bowl of ice cream and watch TV because that's what your human self needs right now. And it's just as important to, you know, take care of your ego. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes the self-loving information is distraction, right? Like, it, especially with anxiety and panic attacks, it can be like a little bit of really listening to your intuition about when to kind of feel the deeper feeling and move through some of the bigger energy and then also when to distract and go on a walk outside and get into nature and, like you said, jump out of bed or change up the vibe. Mm -hmm. And I've also had numerous experiences of times when I have have actually felt deeply threatened in some way and being drawn way down deep inside myself into a place where I felt completely safe from everything, even being physically harmed or or being killed. That's very much like Adam's story in the book. Yeah, yeah, I I very much relate to that story. And it does sound like you got to that place of like soul serenity in those experiences. And for me, that actually was one of my, my spiritual awakenings. One of my first ones was I lived in India for a year when I was 15 as a student on a student exchange program. And I was staying with a host family in this small town of Malagao. And there was a terrorist attack that happened a couple houses down in a mosque. And there was a gathering, a a Muslim celebration there that was peaceful. And then there was a bombing attack from a Hindu extremist group. So 
I was there and I witnessed, you know, there many, many people died and were injured that day, uh, including women and children. It was really a horrific thing to witness. And it also sent me on a very existential crisis of feeling kind of like, how can there be love and and an ultimate plan in any of this when there's so much suffering and and hatred and violence? And then my host family actually invited a news crew into our home and I ended up being interviewed because I was one of the only Americans that lived in this town for a long time and I had been close to the blast and I didn't understand the political situation at all, but I started, you know, kind of saying, preaching messages of peace that were like, we're all mothers and fathers and we, you know, we need to kind of put our beliefs aside. And, um, and then I got a call from the UN and they told me that I was a potential target for an upcoming terrorist attack. So, and they urged me to leave India and all my family and friends called and they're trying to get me to come home. But I could really feel like these questions had opened up in me and I knew that I wasn't going to find any answers if I returned home too quickly. I had a process that needed to finish. And so I ended up traveling across India and, and studying with gurus and such. But then I ended up in a situation where I met up with some other exchange students at a bar. And I had never met this group of people before. And they started doing things that were extremely offensive to the barkeep and the people working there culturally. Like they didn't understand some of the cultural rules of India. One of them was one of the German guys started making out with his girlfriend in public, which is not only taboo, but technically illegal at the time. And then he went into the woman's restroom with him. So they kind of instigated this bar fight. <laughs> and I was trying to coax the situation, try to get everybody to de-escalate what was happening. And I was kind of like, hey, guys, let's, you know, calm down. And and the rest of the exchange students jumped out the door. But right before they did, the German guy ended up throwing one of the waiters down. And they left me in the bar by myself in that moment. And in that moment, I got hit in the side of the head and lost consciousness temporarily and then ended up in a situation where I was being beaten by five full-grown men when I was, you know, 15 years old. And I had been living with this survivor's guilt and with this PTSD and really kind of wondering, like, what is the point? Like, why should I stay alive? Why should I be here when there's so much suffering here? There, there can't be a loving plan. And so it was in that moment that I was being beaten up that I really had this, I felt like I was like, oh, I could just let this happen it was a weird feeling where i felt these two battles in me kind of like what's the point of resisting almost and then i looked up at the men and i remember seeing them and looking at their eyes and i could feel that there was this hatred towards me and this rage but i knew that it was so misplaced because i wasn't i didn't even know these people that started the fight and i could feel that it was all a projection which is basically like they were projecting out this experience onto me they believed i was the target of their anger but i could see how pointless it all was and how whenever there's rage or hatred or anger like that how it's so misplaced and untrue and then i could feel the part of them it was like in that moment of darkness that I could feel 
a spark within each of them. And I could imagine them as children, like what were their lives before this, before they had this anger in them, before they were projecting this on me. And in that moment, I, I thought to myself, oh, they don't know who they are in this moment. In this moment, they're not connected to their true nature. They're connected to an idea of their nature. They're con they are connected to an anger, a repressed anger, but they don't know themselves as souls. And that's, that was my first experience of waking up. And then that's when I stood up and fought back and, and was able to get out the doorway. And so it was interesting to have something that seemed so initially dark to end in one of the most transformative experiences of my life. Yeah, I, I loved that story. And Elisa, you have a story about your first experience of your soul. And I would love to hear that experience and what you learned from that about life and the soul and what it is. Yeah, I had a couple weird things happen when I was a child, psychic kind of and out of body experiences. But the one was at Montessori when I was six years old. And we did a little meditation of listening to music. And I remember going like down into the floor and then floating above the school and having like an astral experience. And then afterwards, when they're like, how was that for everybody? I said what I experienced and everybody was like, what? You know, and I remember, oh, this is something you don't like talk about. But what I write about in the book is when I was at my grad school program, I had just left a class about big consciousness stuff, which was actually with Stan Groff and went out onto the grass to eat lunch with my friends. And I started having like going into an altered state where I was started to trance. I was meditating like 20 hours a week at the time. So I was meditating a bunch and used to kind of altered states. But this one felt like it was like happening to me, like it was coming over me. And my friend who was a body worker and intuitive's like, you're going into like a state. Do you want me to like hold space for you? And I really trusted him. So we went in a back room and I was very shocked because I just like popped out of my body basically my consciousness was about four or five feet over my head like my physical body laying down and I could see my turquoise t-shirt and my face and it was so wild because I really had that programming from my dad like once you die fade to black there's nothing more that's it and so I was really shocked like I'm not dead I'm still here I'm I am consciousness but I'm not in my body um, so what does that mean about consciousness? And then as soon as I had that thought, I was pulled into this like pink, fluffy love cloud, basically. And when I merged into it, I had these basically downloads, these memories of who I was before I was in this lifetime as Elisa Romeo. So who I was as a soul. And in that moment, I had a life review, which is basically like a movie, but from the vantage point of everyone else and each experience as well of my whole life. And it was all from the perspective of love. So instead of my narrative of how I thought those events went, it was like love looking at all those events and then looking at how did Elisa get it? Did she listen to love or did she cut herself off from love, love's information in those moments? And it was a big surprise to realize how much I wasn't connected to the energy of love. Even if what I thought I was doing was spiritual or smart or loving, some of what Elisa thought was literally not what my soul thought. And that was really interesting. And that went on and on that experience. But and, and it was wild because every question I had, it was like I call it like the energetic Google. It's immediately answered. So questions about like my hard relationship with my dad or things like that were just like immediately given to me the why on a soul level of what I was learning in this lifetime and then later, as I was starting to go back into my body, I could feel I was getting dumber and dumber 
going back into the ego of Elisa Romeo. And it put in me this idea of basically what Meet Your Soul is in all our work of like, I want to stay tethered to that part of myself. I don't want to forget. I don't want to have amnesia again. I want to stay in connection with that wisdom and that love. And it's wild. The nature of our ego is that we really are like Dory and Finding Nemo, where we just forget, like, even with our best intentions to try to remember, we're kind of wired to be very forgetful around these spiritual things. So I started a practice really of regular soul journaling, which is just a date with that part of myself where I'm going back and talking to what that part of me knows. And what's amazing after we've worked with thousands of people is literally anyone can do this. We do this with children and we'll, we'll do it like in the form of like sometimes like an animal they love. And then you just say, if you pretended there was an animal, an animal you love, that's like all loving and all knowing. And sometimes they'll be like, that's my bunny rabbit or whatever. And then you just start talking to that energy. What you're doing is summoning the energy of soul in a dialogue. And because every day we all have questions about, should I do this? What's happening here? Why do I feel sad? What's going on over here? You just start to bring all those questions to that part of yourself that does know. And then it's just a little bit of practicing changing the brain state from beta to theta through imagination. It's using the power of imagination to access that place. It really builds that muscle where we really can access this. And that's what I think is so amazing is I, to me, it's just such a miracle that we all have this ability to do that, but we really are not taught how to do it. And when we do our retreats, in the summers, we'll bring the energy of the soul into the room. And it's also quite physical. Adam, with his somatic background, too, it's really useful because he's like an empath and that he can feel in the other person's body, like where the trauma or resistance is from their love body. So a lot of it is just kind of making either the sounds or the movements or doing the things to loosen up the funnel so that we have that connection again to that part of ourselves really physically as well. So I've had numerous intermittent experiences of having clear communication with my soul self or higher self and getting very clear messages and even long, detailed information. But it doesn't feel like I have consistent, intentional access to that whenever I want it or perhaps try to access it. How, how do you approach developing that that skill it's very much it is a skill that's the word and it's like we call our work where people are going from amateur to pro so it's kind of like okay we all can like you know ski a little bit but now we're going to the olympics that's how we see this work so it's like most people even if they do nothing are going to have moments of grace in their lives occur to them of where the stars are right the conditions are right where we have these kind of spiritual experiences and those are beautiful and wonderful and amazing but also the real spiritual warrior work comes in with, well, I'm stressed and I'm not feeling like it and I'm kind of depressed. Can you still hear? Right. So it's just about kind of a practice of doing it regularly so that you really are building that muscle of going from beta to theta in your brain. Yeah, I think intuition is an interesting subject because people don't see it like a skill. They think it's something they should be naturally good at or, or they assume that they have no connection to their intuition. But it is, like Elisa said, it's just like practice. And so it's 
it's like if we go to the gym once and work out one muscle, it's going to be weak. But if we go every day, it will be strong. So it is just showing up every day for that soul dialogue and soul journaling. And one reason we love that practice is because it gives room for the ego to be where it's at. So often people can only connect to their intuition when they're feeling pretty okay, their nervous system is not triggered, they're in a peaceful and relaxed state. But we're like, those times when life is going well is usually the time we need wisdom the least. It's when life is really hard and difficult and when we feel disconnected from love that we need that wise voice to guide us. Or those heightened days like when Adam was beat up in India, it's like he had a spiritual opening because of the intensity of that moment. But most of us, most days are just kind of average and boring and not a lot going on. So it's kind of like, how do we how do we open on those days? But it's also about, like Adam was saying, integration. I think when Adam and I first met, because of who we are as souls and it was a reunion, we had a lot of really big peak spiritual experiences happening where it just felt like coming back to this love knowing and reunion and there was physical kind of kundalini like shaking kind of symptoms we were having and it felt like we were so just in god what you know it was just wild time of like this really intensified heightened period and after that i remember it started to get more integrated and we started to know each other more as egos and things started kind of like just becoming more normal. And then I had these feelings of, oh, I miss that time when it was so intense. And then it was really clear to me for my soul. She was like, we showed it to you big so you can find it when it's small in the sense of like the energy, but it's always there. It's like we live in Seattle where it's like the sun is there all year, but you don't see it for four months in winter. And sometimes in January when you haven't seen it for 60 days, you're like, does the sun even exist anymore? Like, is that even a thing? And and then you take an airplane and you go up, oh my gosh, it was here the whole time. So I think it's kind of like that where it's like just training the ego to be able to be more just, yeah, like turned in that direction and then really finding it, even if it's not a supernaturally sunny day. So talk about the sort of language of the soul and how it speaks to us and the challenges to beginning to access that, including you know, when you begin, let's say, starting to work with soul dialoguing and soul journaling, when that still voice is still so quiet and our minds might be still pretty uh, loud. Or even like in my case, where, where I've done so much meditation in my life that my mind is actually very quiet. But yeah. still, in certain moments, I may not feel like I have any access or maybe maybe my soul doesn't have anything to say to me i i don't i'm not sure what definitely i think your soul has something to say to you i think all (laughs) our souls have stuff to say to us every day i do think there's a part of the work besides even just the discipline part of the building the muscle that it is a little bit like you have to like fight for it because there's something to the energy of the psychological complexes. Like sometimes something will come over me and I'll be like just kind of depressed and irritated and just a little negative or something. And it can be subtle, maybe not a big thing, but it it changes my relationship to my soul in that moment of like, I don't even care. Is this, is there a point to this? Or I can get really resistant or apathetic. And in those moments, I see it. It's a little like kind of, I always think of like gophers underground where 
they're in the tunnel and you have to dig, 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 dig through the tunnel to come out to find the light. So a lot of soul journaling, I think, is the fighting for it. Of It's like kind of willful of like, I know it's there. I'm going to find it, even if I'm not feeling it, even if I don't know. And that part that's kind of like you have to push through the it's like you have to really if I pretended to know, I feel like with you, I think it's a little bit of that stepping into that energy of like, no, I do know that part of you that's like, I do know it. And if there's a part of you like a gremlin, as I would say in my first book, Meet Your Soul, we talked about the gremlins that are the voices like that might sabotage it. And it can be very subtle. We might not even identify it as sabotage. But mm -hmm. that voice within all of us that's trained by society that's like, this isn't real or you can't do it. I think that's one we all have is like, this yeah. isn't a thing. Like you can't. Right. But really... That's we can. It's so natural. Our seven-year-old is brilliant at this, mostly because we've just protected him from the programming in society that says he can't. It's like you don't have to do anything to awaken. You just have to stop bullcrapping yourself, right? And, <laughs> and so it's kind of like that with soul journaling, too. It's like you don't really need to do anything to find your soul. It's just it's just more of kind of sometimes a self-esteem thing of taking the projection off of the idea that we can't. I would say that the most common blocks to soul dialoguing are one what elisa just said is this idea that we can't do it just an assumption that this is maybe made up and so i think it's first like we said just faking it till you make it just suspend your disbelief for a moment to try the practice and i would say the second thing is we when we're using intuition our psychic skills we expect proof and so if we get something that's wrong if we get some intuitive information that's a little bit off we think oh the whole thing's baloney and I was just fooling myself in the first place. But that's like saying I want to be an NBA basketball player and then trying to make a slam dunk and you can't. And then saying, oh, well, basketball's all you know, not worth it anyways, not worth my work. And so I think we need to see intuition and psychic skills just like that, that it's like we can develop that over time. And the third thing is we really see it like a relationship. And it's an internal relationship between you and your highest self, between you and your most loving, unconditional self that's connected to wisdom that's beyond your ego. And so it takes time to build trust in that relationship, just like in any relationship. We need to journal for a little bit, dialogue, have a positive experience, get familiar with the voice of our soul and everybody's soul voice is different everybody has a unique form their own expression of love and divinity and so it's getting to know your unique personality of soul and recognizing it and when people get soul information there's always this feeling of oh that is truth there's a somatic feeling and so getting away from our analytical mind of how we interpret it and more into a somatic place of, can you recognize the feeling difference between when you're accessing your wisdom or in your ego mind? And most meditation these days is about, you know, calming the monkey mind. So it's about mindfulness training of like, okay, find yourself between the thoughts as peace, which is really useful, but that's not activating your soul. That's not bringing your soul in. Soul starts with that prayer and intention. I want to know you. I want to meet you. So our method is very specific. We have free meditations on our website, holyandhuman.com. And the meditations in the book are all about, really, we thought a lot about the phrases and the prompts we're using to activate energies so that you are bringing in your sainted self, which is your soul, your all loving self into the physical container of your body. 
and so we see that we call that soul birthing where even though we were you know incarnated in utero there's this bigger incar- spiritual incarnation process that goes on through our whole lives so most of us are here but also not fully present as our souls and our bodies it can kind of come in and out and stuff like the tide but there's also this kind of process a spiritual birthing that is happening through our life lessons so our method is really specific even with how like soul journaling it's not just doing it in your head we really push writing it because the ego needs reference point to go back to and process and integrate and question and fight with and have resistance and wrestle on the mat with that working through those gremlins so our method is very specific about how because we all do have amnesia and we aren't supported in the validity of this. And we understand that it doesn't happen overnight. It is like Adam said, an ongoing relationship. And like any relationship, are you having quality time together? Are you conscious and present with that part of yourself? Are you, you know, how, how's the relationship going? Is there anything you, you can do to move forward that relationship basically? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like the amnesia thing because I can be really, really good at doubting myself, despite lots of positive experience of connecting on that. I so get that because of my upbringing. Um, I really had that part of me that not only doubts, but is really like angry about it, (laughs) you know? So it's important to know there's nothing wrong with you or me. That's just the, the way we were raised, you know? And that's just part of like the society we're in. And, and so it's just kind of. And part of the integrational process. So you can take that voice of doubt. I I think so many people relate to what you just said. That's the most common experience of having glimpses of spiritual experiences, having powerful spiritual experiences, but then still getting into a kind of daily mode of, of doubt. That's something, you know, I've worked on for years. And that is a great place to start with the soul journaling because that is the integration. So the, you know, the conversation can be something like this of like soul and you can think you can, we like to place a name on soul. So it can be like big love or a name that represents unconditional love to you. And so you can ask like soul, I want to feel connected to you today. How can I do that? And your soul will respond like first take 10 breaths, then take a walk, then come back and journal or something like that. Or it might be, Hey, I'm, I feel afraid. This doesn't, none of this feels real today. It felt real yesterday, but today it feels all fake. Your soul might respond something like, it feels fake because right now you are seeing it through the lens of your family upbringing or seeing it through the lens of, you know, our culture. And so soul will guide us through those experiences. And actually, Elise and I get way more interested and invested in that process and the integrational process more than the big spiritual experiences. Because I think that actually most of us have had a spiritual experience within our lifetime. But I think very few of us have integrated and turned that into wisdom. Yeah, I can totally relate to that because my life has been <laughs> just a really long, long process of integration of things. And we all have to fight for that that conscious sovereignty, right? Because of how the whole system is set up, it feels almost narcissistic and hubristic to be like, I can do this. I am this. So, But we are. It really is our natural state. It's our spiritual birthright. And so it's almost like the miracle is so beautiful we can't even receive it. So it's kind of warming up our ability to like receive how beautiful we are as souls and to know our truth in that level. We don't have a lot of models for that. 
So it's kind of talking to our wise self about how does that look for us? And so much of it is just kind of inner child work, being compassionate to the human part of us that vacillates and has good days and bad days and is confused a lot. And it's like, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But also making sure we're not getting all our information from that part of ourselves. Right. Something that came up while we were talking about that is that I could just allow myself to relax into my doubting and and not make a big deal of it. And you just mentioned working with our inner child. I would love for you to talk more about that and the actual work of healing our inner child in this you know ongoing process. We knew we had to have an inner child chapter because what we see so often is the reason people struggle with their gremlins is because they don't know how to identify or feel their feelings and to to have compassion for that part of themselves. We, kind of in the beginning when we were writing the book, I think around then, I can't remember how long it is, we went to go see the Mr. Rogers documentary about his life. Um, I think it's Won't You Be My Neighbor. Yeah. So not the movie with Tom Hanks, but the documentary. Did you ever see that? Yeah, it was wonderful. <laughs> he came on the screen and I just think he's the patron saint of, you know, feeling your feelings and, and honoring that part of yourself. We actually talk to him as spirit a lot because he's so helpful. If I'm having a bad day, if I call him in as a spirit, I'm like, Mr. Rogers, what do you want me to know right now? Just the way he handles it and his slow speaking and ability to be absolutely present is just such a gift. We had uh, Officer Clemens on our podcast because we were obsessed with that story and and that was really powerful. Francois that, Clemens is amazing. Yeah, to hear his story of knowing personally Mr. Rogers throughout his lifetime. So touching to feel that love. But we, you know, when we started this book, we had one chapter that was dedicated to the ego. And I He's wrote, actually out by you. He's in, he's near Middlebury. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> and one thing that I realized through reading the book is how similar your ego to soul relationship is to healing inner child work because what we're doing is we're taking our lower self all of our emotions all of our hardship all of our wounds our trauma the things we've been through and talking to our higher self that unconditional love and when we talk to that voice there's never a tone in that voice of like you should be doing better or you're off track the voice is always present supportive unconditional and it's like an all-loving parent. So in that way, we're doing inner parenting work. Every time we talk to our soul, we're holding our emotions in love. We're witnessing them. And we're also recognizing, like Mr. Rogers said, that we're all special and unique. I think when you connect to your soul nature, you really realize that. And when you start to see the soul nature in other people of how beautiful everyone is on that level, on that essence level, how we all have a beautiful essence and when we do sessions with people it's it's stunning how every single time i'm in a session with somebody you know at first we'll sort of have our ego introductions of you know hi how are you doing where are you at and all these things but when i start energetically looking at them and connecting to their soul essence i'm always stunned by the beauty and miracle of who they are no matter what they've been through. And I think Mr. Rogers, why Lisa mentioned him is because he was such a placeholder for that. You know, his message of you're special just the way you are. That is the message of soul often. And that was his relationship to Officer Clemens, Francois Clemens as well. At the end of our podcast, Francois told this story that I just absolutely loved, which was he later in life decided to make a donation to Mr. Rogers and his show, and he wrote him a check 
And Mr. Rogers called him and was like, that was the sweetest, most kind, generous thing. And they had this really connected, beautiful conversation. And then Francois later was like, and he never cashed the check. (laughs) And so his, you know, his focus was, I want to recognize how that was an unconditional loving act, even though I don't actually need this money. And there's a wonderful line in the book where you say, when we dialogue with our soul, we hold space and compassion for our ego, just as we would for our inner child when we can see ourselves in that way. And when we're upset or anxious or scared, we allow the egoic voice to speak those feelings into consciousness where the soul meets and heals that with unconditional love. Absolutely. I mean, I think we live in the society where it's all about like what you've done and what you've achieved, what you can show, what you can prove. And that that's that yang part of us, which is important. But the yin part of us is just normally more the feminine side is more of like the being. So less of a human doing and more of a human being. And so where are we with that? How are we assessing where we're at with how much we're allowing space to feel our feelings trust the natural process of that this morning our younger son he had he's very into pokemon and he traded a card of his yesterday to his friend and he's a very naturally giving generous person like adam has a story when he's young he gave all his stuffed animals away to the whole neighborhood um that's like our younger son where he's just a giver and so this morning he woke up devastated because he told me that one of those friends on the card was an invisible companion it's this like metallic you know kind of stuffed animal looking character that was his invisible friend and he had given it to his friend so he woke up today really upset and wanted his card back and so it was kind of you know he was having this big grief reaction of this like what this character was holding for him kind of imaginally and you know my soul said okay before you kind of try to (laughs) fix this problem you have to just hold a lot of space so we went into his bed and I just cuddled him and held him while he just like weeped you know big weeping feelings of what this card meant to him and then I didn't tell Adam this part yet, but then we went on eBay and found the card and repurchased it. Luckily, it was not like hundreds of dollars. Um, but, you know, that's an example of like, I'm trying to model for him having space to first feel the feelings and to be completely with the human experience of that before you get into problem solving that experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just like, what, what is our inner child at? You know, what do we need? What do we need to do? And I think so many people, it's like, annihilate the ego, transcend the ego. And I think because of my therapy background, I worked with many people with schizophrenia and fractured egos. It's like, for us, it's about having a healthy ego, an ego that can identify its feelings and feel its feelings and reflectively listen to other people and be empathetic. And and at the same time, to understand that the ego isn't all of us. We're like these icebergs where who we think we are is just a small portion of who we actually are as energetic beings. What comes to us from our dreams, our subconscious, our holy loving hearts. And so we're, we're limited in our interpretation of ourselves most of the time. I also think adults can really get into a mode with their emotions of trying to fix them or heal them when often our emotions just want to be held and they just want to be held and felt. And so that I think it can be really deep medicine for us. And often that is the message from soul is this message of why don't you just sit back and relax into that emotion? Like you were saying earlier, like relax into the doubt instead of trying to 
see it like a self-improvement project. Like I need to stop doubting or I need to figure out why I'm doubting so I can stop doubting. Or even if it's seen like a healing journey, opposed to all of that, what if you're just present with that for a moment and allow yourself to feel that? And what may come up is maybe a deep fear at first. But once that emotion is seen, felt, recognized, that is often the only case in which we can actually heal and move on. And we do a lot of that ourselves. A lot of we call it like onion work where you're like, okay, here's what I think I'm feeling. And then you sit and hold it and inquire and get curious. And then you leave space. Oh no, here's the deeper feeling emerging. Okay. Now hold and sit and love and be with that. And then, oh no, here it is. Right. So it's like peeling the layers of the onion and it just takes time to melt into because it just takes time to, to surface. Mm -hmm. You mentioned working with our ego as well. And could you talk about the characteristics of a healthy ego and talk about having or cultivating an ego to soul relationship? I think the number one factor of a healthy ego is understanding its relationship to the soul. Because most of us, most people we all talk to only know themselves as their ego. And I mean... It's not that that's bad. It's just limited. Have you heard of this new movie called Tinder Swindler? <laughs> Watch the Tinder Swindler on Netflix this it's week. On Netflix. It's so fascinating. It's about this guy who's a con artist and he goes on Tinder and he basically manipulates these women to thinking he's their boyfriend, you know, one at a time. He'll take a woman and he'll be like, I think I'm falling in love with you. He'll take him on like a fancy like private jet into, you know, all these crazy beautiful. So it, sh it looks like he has a lot of money. And then he'll start saying things like, I love you. I want to have children with you. You're who I've always been looking for. Yeah. And so basically he's like an international con artist and has only gained more fame through the whole experience. But what was interesting about watching that is we could really see how that is a prime example of a limited egoic relationship where these women were just believing everything he was saying because they were only knowing themselves as ego and him as an ego. So everything could be taken at face value of like, hey, I love you. You're great. Let's have children together. But what we teach through Holy Love is can you pierce through that and feel into that person's essence and their intentions? And and so if you were doing holy love work, it would be impossible to end up in a situation like that. So that's an example of one we're purely relating from an egoic place, ego to ego. Because they were also discrediting their intuition throughout the process, right? They'd start to have these little red flag moments or feelings of something's wrong or off here, but they'd shove it down because the ego stuff was so flashy and just like what the ego wanted. So that's an example of one we purely identify for ego. So in a way to have a healthy ego, we need to have a little bit of relationship to our intuition and soul right away. But also having a healthy ego, you know, when you say the word ego, most people think of, you know, the examples of like when somebody has a big ego of like, of needing to have all the attention in the like room. Like a narcissist. Of, like a narcissist of, you know, flashing their, their money in their cars like this guy was. But actually, that can be a sign of a weak ego that's compensating, that's over showboating because they actually feel very insecure. So we would say a healthy ego is usually adaptable, is usually uh, has a There's bit a of flexibility to it, a malleability to it. 
but also a sense of self that's not blown over by the next windstorm. So you know, like, what types of food you like, what types of music you like, what you want to do today. And it's not subject to somebody else. You know, example of a weak ego is like, somebody's like, I want to go to Indian food. And the person's like, I don't want to go to Indian food. And then you might just completely cave being like, oh, I don't even know if I like Indian food anymore. Let's go to your restaurant. So that would be an example of an unhealthy ego there. So you have to have a sense of identity. It also all depends where it's coming from, because maybe that person's like hurt from their soul. It doesn't matter where you're eating for you today. So I think all these things, we have these kind of guidelines. But at the end of the day, it's a lot of self-inquiry of like what's going on with that particular person. Because, yeah, we're all so complex as humans. There's so much going on. I feel like we're like these universes where there's like every person has so much going on. And so it's so important to really ask yourself, your higher self, what do you want me to know? And what does that mean for me? Because it might be really different. Sometimes it'll be like a book's popular and everybody's reading the book and the book might be a great book, but my soul, Sophia, will be like, not for you, not now, not with what you're working on right now. And my ego might have an idea of what I think I should do. Well, this person I really admire liked the book and they said I should read it. So I should do that. Right. But then Sophia might be like, which is the name of my soul? Like, no, because we're working on something else. And sometimes if we don't listen in that way that you're able to, um, our soul will actually block things and prevent things from happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I used to call that being clock blocked by the universe because I would see so many people in relationships where, or, or jobs where they'd get they wouldn't get the job they wanted or the relationship they thought they wanted. And I could see on a soul level, it's because like it wasn't a fit, but the ego interpreted it as rejection. Yeah. And the ego, an unhealthy ego is really stuck on its own personal agenda. And I guess a healthy ego would recognize that it's not the master, that that its place is really as a vehicle, as a tool to be used by the whole of us. And our the soul. somatic practice we do is before one of the things we do is like put your forehead on the ground. So in prayer, that act of literally laying down the analytical mind before you step into the discussion with your soul can be really a useful just like ritual of like, I'm letting go of this part of me that thinks it knows everything and opening to the mystery right now. That's actually one of my very favorite practices. It's one of the simplest. It's one that I use when I get onto airplanes. I will essentially oh, I love that. do that and say, using a term for the name of God and saying, I'm in your holy hands. Because when I get yeah. a, get on a plane, you have no control. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's really useful for anxiety. Um, Carl Jung, when Bill Waters, Bill W. was wrote him a letter when he was starting AA, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, he was like, what do you think I need most for this to work, to to help addicts? And he was like, you have to have something outside of the ego to give it to, something greater than the ego, whether that's the self with a capital S or the Holy Spirit or like God or whatever, you, ha- you have to have something greater than the ego or the ego trips itself up thinking it has to control everything. And so that's why it's so important to be in relationship to something greater than who we think we are. And to be able to recognize our limitations. Absolutely. <laughs> On that level, at least. <laughs> yeah, which is humbling. And 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 I think the ego resists that feeling sometimes because the ego likes to be in control. But it's also such a relief, as you said, with the airplane, because it's like, I got to control it. I got to control. Oh, I can't control it. Oh, thank 
God, I can't control you, right? Then it gets to like, I get to just, we watched a Dave Chappelle interview last night with David Letterman on his show. Um, what's it called? Who's up next or something like that? No introduction needed, I forget. But uh, it was really beautiful because he really talked about that kind of like the humbling process and and giving the ego up to something greater and believing in something outside yourself. Mm-hmm. So let's get into holy love and exactly what you mean by that or describe what that is and bring it into the realm of interpersonal relationship. Yeah. So holy love, you know, I think we purposely stuck with that title, holy love, even though we knew that people might think it's religious or have some past belief programming on it because we wanted to actually kind of challenge our notion of love and our conception of the true nature of love because we really see that anytime you connect with your soul you're connecting with unconditional love and you're connecting to divine love and so when you're able to create a moment of unconditional love with another human you are participating in soul love and divine love what was the second part of your question you said something about interpersonal Yeah, bringing that into our interpersonal relationships. And also, I think it really connects with what you said earlier about feeling into and connecting with each other's essence. Yeah, I think in interpersonal relationships, it's really about feeling into the essence of the other person. And, And for us, it's just using it really like that dialoguing of literally asking their soul, what's going on with their ego and how do we assist that part of them? Like, I'm really lucky where Adam's really great at this. So if I'm in a mood or anxious or something, Adam has that ability to talk to Sophia. What's going on with Elisa today? How can I help her move through this? So it's really a conscious, active, engaged relationship in terms of with that other person's essence. Our older son is 13 and he's starting to get into that moody hormonal phase and It's really useful if he's quiet and kind of in a mood. I can really talk to his soul and hear what's going on with him today. How can I help him? What should I say? What shouldn't I say? So it's so useful in all our relationships. So I want to get really clear about how you're doing that. Like, let's say you're with Adam and some conflict has risen and Adam is communicating or connecting with Sophia, your soul. Adam, are you doing that? out loud or are you doing that internally? Yeah, often often internally at first. Uh, it kind of depends on the moment. You know, we wanted to make soul dialoguing a technique that you could use in all moments because we're parents and we know that life can get real and get stressful and busy. And so we wanted to make this a technique that you could use in the bathroom if, you know, because sometimes that's the only time as a parent you have 10 minutes. So in that situation, I'm doing it internally in my head as a dialogue. But whenever I can, I like to sit down and journal because like Elisa said, having that evidence for the ego to look back on is is really great. And I'll ask my soul what he wants me to communicate to Elisa directly and what he doesn't. So if Elisa's like in a mood of stress, my soul information might be like, first, just give her 30 minutes. You know, watch the kids for a little bit. She's just sort of in a heightened anxiety state and she'll feel better if she has a break. Yeah, it's a combination of all those. A lot of times it's silent, but I think the journaling is a big part of him being conscious with that relationship. Yeah, and then sometimes my soul will come in with things like, you know, it would be really helpful if you speak to her ego, this information that's like, 
I know you're feeling anxious about this thing. It's actually going to be okay. Uh, we can fix this problem later, but right now let's just like hold this emotion for the next 10 minutes. But when both parties are stressed and at least one of you realizes that you have the option to do soul communication, but there is that stress and there's the tension of the moment. How, how do you navigate that? A lot of times it's soul then giving us inner child work of what we do to release then calm the stress. And honestly, that's a common thing with us because we're parents of two kids. So there's many times where we're both activated, you know, of just stress and life's happening and not feeling really relaxed and juicy. And so a lot of times I'll say, Sophia, what's going on right now? And she's like, you're both stressed, you know, so here's the plan. Like, take 30 minutes, don't talk about it now, come back to it then, then say this. And so a lot of times that's her giving me inner child's directives of how to get the human part more feeling safe and calm. Yeah, human beings are so messy. and We are. And, and <laughs> I when, know, it's wild. And, and when we're both in that hot moment together and yeah. we start bouncing off each other, it's like, the tension or the stress. Uh, absolutely. It's and we like to say a lot of people get in this ping pong game from ego to ego of your trauma hurt my feelings, right? So that's what's really common in relationship of like, you're stressed. One person says a passive aggressive thing. It pisses off the other person. Then they say something back. And now we're just going back and forth, ego to ego to ego to ego, getting offended. But if we stop and take a moment, soul, what's going on right now? Then everything changes. Oh, well, your inner child wounds activated because she's they're reminding you of your mother or whatever. And then just take a breath, take a beat. You don't need to have urgency to solve this right now. Take care of yourself and then engage in this way and then listen to your soul about how, when, and why. And you work with people. Help. Yep, we do individual sessions, couple sessions, and we do retreats. And we have also free meditations and stuff. We try to put a lot of free content on our website, YouTube channel and stuff so that everyone can access the information because this is a calling. This is our, this is why we're on the planet. And so we really believe if everyone could do this, we wouldn't have wars and enemies because if you can see the soul in another, you're not going to project your fear onto other people and then need to beat them up or diminish them. And there's a lot more room for everyone to just be their true selves. So for us, this is just the way we want the world to head. Mm -hmm. It sounds imminently sane. So yeah, I like that <laughs> phrase, imminently sane. That's great. So in your work with other people, what is it that you're doing with them and what are you not doing with this? I think a what we're not doing is usually giving their ego a lot of room to run the show. And I think that's surprising to some people because a lot of people are used to kind of therapists. It's all about the ego's narrative, the ego's interpretation if we're reflecting the ego. We do a little of that, enough where they don't run out of this room screaming. <laughs> yes, honestly, you gotta, you know, basically let the ego feel it's seen. But that the ego is not our boss. The soul is our boss. So we commonly say things that upset people's egos because it's what the soul is saying. But what we do when we're on a session is we'll usually have somebody just sort of talk about a life situation and then we'll watch them energetically and we'll see when something lights up and feels true and resonates and we'll help them identify that for themselves so that they'll know, oh, you know, they'll be like, I'm really stressed about this job decision. I don't know which job I should take. There's this one that, you know, pays less, but is more of my passion, one that pays more, but is, you know, may 
cause a lot of suffering for a lot of years. And so we'll have them really feel into that. We'll coach them through connecting to their own soul until they feel really crystal clear about their path forward. Most of us have have unresolved traumas that keep getting triggered in our relationships until they get healed. And you write that by consciously connecting with the soul, we create a vehicle through which true emotional and physical healing is possible. I would love for you to talk more about the healing that is possible in that way. I think a lot of it's what Adam was speaking to earlier, where a lot of us just need to be seen and held in the energetics of places where we weren't. The body remembers everything. It's like your biology is your biography. And we have memory of even things we don't even think we have. We've had sessions where people have regressed to how their mother has felt about them being pregnant with them, you know, and knowing how mother felt in those moments that have affected them as a trauma. And they don't know that until they're in maybe a more, you know, theta state of accessing how that impacted them. So as much as we're comfortable not letting the ego lead this show, we're also not abusive. I think we're very aware that what we all need is love and compassion and healing. And it's just really kind of like with my son and his Pokemon cards. What he really needed is just me to be with him in that. And it's kind of energetically you're saying like, I see you, I'm with you. I get you're experiencing this. I'm sorry you're feeling this way. And our book is not focused purely on romantic relationships. And so when we were pitching this to our publicists and they were like, oh, this is a relationship book. We're like, well, yeah, but we didn't really ever see it as purely for romantic relationship. We saw it for all relationships. And one thing we're doing when you use this navigation system, start using your intuition for any relationship is you're creating a, a relationship where there's space to hold that trauma where you guys are connecting in love, but you still have unconditional love holding those wounds. And I think that can be really healing too to have experience with oh, somebody. A lot of it's intuitive where we're scanning the person's body and energy field to just do energy work and look at like where the holding is. So some of it's hard to put into words because a lot is going on when we're doing a session. It's not just what we're saying. It's the transmission of what's happening so that their soul feels more comfortable coming into the body and that the ego feels more comfortable opening to that. So again, really feeling into and connecting with the other person's essence or soul. Absolutely. And people feel it. It's like, it's really interesting. We always say it's like, you know, when you're in a relationship, it's like a used car, you buy it as is. So you never want to have the intention to change anyone in relationship. But at the same time, when you do this work, it does usually create a change because people can feel that energetically if you're trying to change them or if you're doing your own inner work and really listening to your soul and love, it starts to transform the room and this grace comes over where everybody's a little more just like open to love and, and less resistant and less kind of battling with their ego of how they think things are. It kind of loosens up belief systems. Yeah, it creates a lot of space yeah. for each other to just be who they are. And what's alive in the present moment, I think, really becomes the focus instead of what we thought we wanted to do for our agenda of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that can be such a, a difficult thing. And that's all our sessions and retreats are like that, too. We definitely don't come in like, here's what or, or sometimes if we do think this is what we're doing, a lot of times that isn't what we're ending up doing. It's more because the soul really has a clear syllabus all the time of like what 
wants to happen in terms of love incarnation. And it's actually quite efficient and very specific. And we've just practiced for years and years trying to really listen to those directives. Yeah. And the rest of us just need to keep at it. Yeah. I mean, we, that's what we're doing. We're keeping at it too, all of us, right? It's like, we're all in a process. Mm -hmm. So are there practices that you particularly like for creating that recognition and acknowledgement of each other's essence or soul? Yeah. Adam did a beautiful job of in the book and then on our website, having these meditations where it's just really kind of calling in their energy field and paying attention to them as the energetics and opening up to that. Cause it really is just kind of, it's like, I don't know if you've ever been in the mall and have you ever looked at those paintings where, or they're like dots, they do it on a computer and it looks like a mess of abstract art. And then you zone out and then like a pirate ship will come forward in the image. They're like 3d pictures. Have you ever done that? We don't have any malls around here, or at least I don't go to malls. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have much access. Since I've been to a mall, but we used to have one in our local mall. And they're so weird. There's also these books of them, but they're fun because you're like, this is nothing. I'm looking at nothing here. And then you stare at it. And if you look for the image, you oh, won't. Now I know. Yeah, now I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But if you zone out and you allow the image to come to you, then it like surfaces. And then he goes like, what's happening? This is crazy, right? I think the seeing the soul in other is so much like that. Where if you try to find it with your ego, it doesn't go very well. But if you relax and chill out and let it come to you, then it's shocking in how clear and beautiful it is. And you're talking about the actual direct connecting with. Yeah, Adam has like meditations he's written that's also just like visually seeing it, but it's also feeling it. So the first step is intention. So it's setting the intention to know the other soul. That's a huge prayer in itself, right? So if it's like, if you just, if anyone listening is like, hey, I'm going to set the intention to like be in relationship to the soul of my friend or partner today, that's that's a big thing. You, it will come to you in some way when you set that prayer out to the universe. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you allude to the growth of the soul. I'm curious what you mean by that. And, and does the soul grow? Yeah, the soul is in process, even though it's like, it, it, it's kind of ironic, because it's like a perfected state, but it's also an everything is evolving as well. And so some people will talk about it in terms of the dimensions, like the third, fourth, fifth, sixth. So we exist on all the different dimensions, but the 12th dimension or the oversoul, to me, that's where you're aiming when you're talking to your higher self. Don't worry if anyone listening doesn't understand what I'm talking about, because you don't need to understand this, but some people like to see it in these terms to kind of really get the map of it. I think sometimes what happens is people set the intention to hear their soul, but they're talking to maybe their sixth dimensional self or their seventh, and we're aiming really to your sainted self. I see it, that part of us is almost like Christ as a title, so less about even just that one individual, but what was the process of the individuation of love that was occurring through that experienced person or myth, whatever you want to see it as. What's that archetype of the Christ consciousness? And to me, that's the incarnation of the 12th dimensional self into the human third dimensional form. So the 12th dimensional self, I see it as like God or love behind all creation, whatever we're calling that that unconditional love that is the creator, that's like the ocean and then souls are the raindrop. So we're, we're from that energy and we go back to it, but there's also this individuated form that is different and unique. So your soul is different than my soul, but we're both love and we're both unconditionally in some ways the same energy. So 
in my first book, I talk about the difference between spirit and soul because spirit is more of that transcendent all is one experience. But then soul is more of that individuated consciousness where your and my souls are different in terms of what we're doing in this lifetime. So your soul lessons are different than mine. They're both coming from love, but your unique flavor of love has a different agenda than mine. And agenda usually is a bad word, but this is like in a good way <laughs> in terms of just higher agenda of like how love wants to know itself through form. And this is where I'm sure listeners would be wondering, well, how does this relate to reincarnation and the and this overall evolution of the soul and how I have the same soul, even though I have many different lifetimes in terms of incarnated. So in this lifetime, I'm Elise Romeo, but I've been many other genders and races and places. And so the soul of Sophia was the same, regardless of the gender, sexual identity, color, you know, programming, religious beliefs of the physical experience. And also as our ego self or our general right. sense of self evolves, the soul, our soul also is evolving. Right. It, it can get confusing because we usually project ego in terms of a personality on the soul. And it's not like that because the soul is bigger than that. But the soul does have uniqueness to it. It is somewhat of form in the sense that it's not all form is a weird word because it's not physical form, but it's not all is oneness energy either. It has a unique voice. And yeah. yeah. It's like an entity, oh. I would say. Right. Right. <laughs> and some people can have very um, radically different expressions. Yes. Like some. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's also really confusing because you can like hate someone as a personality and love their soul. And right. and that can be really confusing <laughs> for for me, it's been confusing many times because the they're really different, right? It can be really, I mean, my background's working with gang members, pedophiles, you know, I've worked in hard situations and it's wild to see the personality incarnation, which sometimes might be even biological for this particular lifetime, let alone the trauma that's informed that personality and then to feel the love self behind it. Mm -hmm. But course. yeah, you have to be realistic. You have to see what's in front of you. You can't be in denial about what that human might be capable of. Right. Their ultimate, you know, where they're headed. Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes people spiritually bypass and they can be around, you know, a murder and be like, but I love them and let's just, but it's like, it's also, if it's a wild tiger, that's going to kill you. You have to be realistic with what's in front of you, you know? Right. So I made a note about asking you about, this soul eulogy exercise. And I don't even remember what it is at this moment. I mean, it's an intense exercise and we debated keeping it or leaving it. But I think one reason we are who we are is because yeah, we're not afraid to go there. And it's honestly how we live. Like, I think because we connect to so many spirits who tell us stories of how they've died and what's happened to them we're really connected into the fact of we are more than this lifetime. Like for us, that's not a concept. That's like a reality we feel and understand in our bodies. So we just know it helps people when you go to that place of like where you'll no longer be as a personality in this lifetime, it does anchor you into more who they are as a soul. Yeah. And that exercise you're referring to just for the listeners that don't know what we're talking about, the soul eulogy exercise is we kept that in because it was a great way of, trying to take a moment to step away from the ego 
and the egoic understanding of each other to feel into the energetic relationship. So what we had couples do is go into different rooms and imagine that your partner has died and then to write a eulogy from the heart for that person and how you would remember them. Because it's often when we think about somebody leaving that we are reminded of who they really were on an essence level. And it's less about what they did and their actions and sometimes even about the memories and more just about who they were on that level. Sometimes we'll even say, if you don't know who someone is to you, imagine that if they're in a coma, who are they? What is the part of them that's irreplaceable? That's not just about what they did or they said, but that their essence. That's only them. Right. Who are they really? Yeah. Despite the appearances of, of what's happening or going on. And despite yeah. who they might think they are, too. Right. <laughs> and and who yeah. they, they're trying to convince you they are. Right. Yeah. Who, who does your body and your energy really know that they are? Mm -hmm. I would love to continue this, but uh, I understand you need to go. So it's been a pleasure to talk with you. It's been amazing yes. to speak with you. I love your energy and your soul energy as well. It's been really fun. Thanks for yeah. having us on the Magical Mystery Tour. Here. Yeah, it was a magical mystery. I, I love that it. that was pretty magical <laughs> and mysterious. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have you. My guests have been Elisa Romeo and Adam Foley. Together, they are the host of the Holy and Human podcast and the authors of this wonderful book we've been talking about, Holy Love, The Essential Guide to Soul-Fulfilling Relationships. Do you have a website? Yep, it's just holyandhuman.com, and that's where we also have our podcast. You can listen to podcasts anywhere. There's podcasts, but it's also directly on there, and we have the meditations up and stuff like that and information about our sessions and all the stuff over there. Thank you so much for being Thank you so much. It was wonderful speaking with you today. Yeah, thanks for having us. for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. So no longer pretend.